Well, again, if you would, uh, take out your Bibles, and let's turn for our New Testament reading to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 21. And as I uh, mentioned earlier, it's very fitting in God's providence that we end up at this text dealing with prayer, particularly as, um, well, we have a lot to be praying about right now. So it's good for us to talk about prayer at such a time as this. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word, this prayer, Paul. We pray, Father, that you would grant to us ears to hear. That we would glean from this a better understanding of how we're to praise you. And how we ought to pray. Bless us in this time we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are reminded in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for all people, particularly kings and those who hold authority. Uh, This is one of the reasons why each Lord's Day in our uh, long prayer or pastoral prayer, as it may be called, I I regularly try to pray for those who hold office. God's people are to pray. We're to pray diligently. We're to pray consistently for one another and for the world around us, the needs of the community around us. But consistent and diligent prayer is hard. Why is this? I mean, after all, isn't prayer a means of grace by which our Heavenly Father is pleased to hear from His beloved children? Why, then, is it something we tend to avoid? Why is it so hard for us? Perhaps prayer is something that you struggle with. Speaking of the difficulty of prayer, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, Everything we do in life is easier than prayer. Prayer is what we are called to both as a duty and as a joy. But it's hard for us. Most of us would rather do something else entirely. 
often the case that is that we don't know how to pray. Maybe that's why it's so hard. We don't, we don't even know how to get started. What do we pray for? Who do we pray for? The Scripture gives us a number of models for prayer. Jesus, of course, gave us the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. The model of prayer. The Psalms are filled with models of prayer. For our Old Testament reading, we read the Song of Moses. Right? A prayer that could be sung. Even the apostles give us models for prayer. A.W. Pink, in his book, Effectual Fervent Prayer, said this regarding biblical prayer, quote, We should pray deliberately according to these apostolic models, petitioning for the particular blessings they specify. I have long been convinced there is no better way, no more practical, valuable, and effective way of expressing uh, solitude and affection for our fellow saints than by bearing them up before God by prayer in the arms of our faith and love. End quote. What Pink Pink is saying is that one way in which we can express our love for God and our love for one another and even grow in our love for one another and our love for Christ is to pray for and with one another. There's a person you struggle with loving. You know what you should do? You should pray for them. You tend to grow in love and affection for those pray for. We ought to pray for the needs of one another. It is a sense of duty, but it is a sense of joy. It's an expression of love. But, as I've said, prayer is hard. We know we ought to pray. We know we ought to pray for one another. But too often we do not do that. And we do not, perhaps, because we are like the disciples who ask Jesus, teach us to pray. And so today we are going to be taught once again how to pray. By looking at the prayer of the Apostle Paul. A prayer he offers up on behalf of the church in Ephesus. Paul's prayer to God is that the Holy Spirit would strengthen the believers in Ephesus so that they may be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. So that they would be enabled to comprehend the magnitude of the love of God in full measure. The fullness of God's love has already been demonstrated. Paul talked about this as the mystery which has been revealed, that the Jews and the Gentiles are now both partakers of the spiritual blessings found in Jesus Christ. And so they have unity with one another. They are now one people of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for this reason, Paul bursts forth in this prayer of thanksgiving. He is overflowing with gratitude toward God for the salvation which has been brought to many nations. This instrument of God's revelation, having brought to light the mysteries of Christ, now pours forth thanksgiving. And so he begins his prayer by returning to where he began in verse 1 of chapter 3, by saying again, for this reason. 
Now you might remember that he started to say this before. He said, for this reason, and then he sort of interrupts himself. And he spends uh, quite a bit of time um, talking about other things, about uh, the mystery which has been revealed, about the insights that God has given to him. But now he returns again to this. Looking back at chapter 2, he reminded them that both the Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. So no longer are the Gentiles strangers and aliens. No longer are they outsiders. They are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The Gentiles, like the Jews, are by faith beneficiaries of the unsearchable riches of Christ. They could be saved by, from their sin by faith in Him. And so for this reason, because of the, the wonder of the gospel, Paul is bowing his knee because God has united all people and nations, Jews and Gentiles alike in Christ. The door to salvation has been opened to all who trust and rest in Jesus Christ alone. They can be saved from their sins by faith in Him. And even now the Spirit of God is at work in the hearts of many throughout the world, bringing sinners into a state of salvation. This merciful salvation, immense and free, has come to those who repent and believe. This, beloved, is the good news of the Gospel. This is what we are thankful for, why we rejoice. Sinners are being reconciled to God. The lost have been rescued. Various nations and tribes and peoples can be and are being brought into the kingdom. You can have access to God in Christ as you trust and rest in Him. This, beloved, is this truth is cause for great joy for us. Certainly it was for Paul. This is what drove Paul to his knees before the Father and his prayer of thanksgiving and praise. When we consider the majesty of God, the work of God's redemption worldwide, bringing salvation to those from varying tribes and peoples and nations, it is appropriate for us to adore our Father and our God and our King. And so this is the reason, for this reason, for the reason of redemption coming, that Paul bows his knee. Now in bowing his knee, this is, a, this is the posture of humble prayer. The bent knee is not merely a physical posture, but rather it is the posture of the heart. This is a heart of humility. And so we see the first lesson of prayer here, that is humility. When we come before a holy God, we come as creatures before the Creator. We come with humility. We ought to recognize the awesome power and greatness of God. And so Paul, in in humble prayer, bows his knee before God the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now what does this mean? Well, first of all, the word is translated here, family, in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Family is the word in Greek, patria. 
It's related to the word which we would translate father. The family is one who comes from a common father. And so there, there is a sense, uh, there's a couple of senses we could understand this. Uh, first of all, uh, we, we understand that all people on the planet are descendants of Adam, who was himself created by the Heavenly Father. And so in this sense, all the families of the earth are really one family, all tracing their origin back to the Creator. But this is not the family that Paul has in mind here. The family that Paul has in mind here, the family that Paul is describing is a spiritual family, the spiritual family of God. The people who have been adopted in Christ and who have spiritual union with Him by faith. All those who are in Christ as members of that same spiritual household. That is, you, is to say that Uh, every member of this family carries the family name. You are called a Christian. You belong to Yahweh. This is what Paul is getting at when he talks about family. He humbly bows his knee before the God from whom every family in the world is named as children in as far as they are adopted in Christ Jesus as Lord and King. Now how do we know that this is what Paul is talking about? Notice that Paul does not say where every family on earth comes from. If he said where every family uh, comes from, then we would assume he's talking about sort of the universal family of men. But this is what he says. He's not talking about origin. If what he had in, or- in mind was origin, he, was, he would have said that all of the people that God made. What he says is from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Your name is your identity. It speaks to who you are. Just as children derive their name from their father, so too do we as believers derive our name from our Heavenly Father in Christ. So who are you? If you're a Christian, you are the adopted child of God the Father who has purchased you and redeemed you by the blood of the Son, Jesus Christ, His only begotten The whole family of God gets their name from Him. We are known and recognized and received as His children. We identify with Him. Now many in our day want to identify in other things, in what they do or what they like. In some cases, by their sin patterns. People in our day are searching for meaning, searching for identity. And they're re-identifying themselves regularly. But the, the Christian's identity is found in Christ because you are in Him. You carry the family name. You are a child of the King. And this is the meaning which the unbeliever is seeking and desperately needs. This is why we proclaim the Gospel. Because they need to find their identity in the one who gives true identity in Christ. And so Paul is praying to God the Father, 
who has from among every family and tribe and nation in the world adopted children as his own and put his name on them as belonging to him. Just that fact alone ought to drive us to humility, shouldn't it? It Isn't it very humbling to know that God has called you out of darkness, a sinner, a rebel, has made you not... Not a prisoner now of the king who conquered you, but now a son and an heir. That is humbling. He has made you his. You have his name. You are in the family. I thought it would drive us to humble prayer. Well, finally, verse 16 begins the specifics of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Now, there are three basic parts. First, In verse 16, and in the first part of 17, Paul prays that they may be strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ might dwell in their hearts. Then the second part at the end of verse 17 through 19, and asks that they might comprehend Christ. And then finally, the third uh, portion of his prayer begins in verse 20 and to the end, and this is a doxology of praise, and so we'll deal with that. And so Paul begins by praying that God would strengthen the Ephesian believers with power by His Spirit and out of the riches of His glory. Now the riches of His glory are the abundance of God's divine perfections, His his power, His mercy, His goodness, His truth. Everything which renders God glorious and the, the object of our adoration would be included as the sum total of all of His divine attributes. And so the Apostle Paul is praying that God would deal with His people according to the overflowing abundance of all that makes Him glorious. For God is the source of all that is good. But he specifically prays that the Ephesian would be strengthened with the power through the Spirit in their inward being. In other words, that the inner man would be built up, would be strengthened, would be given peace. But to understand what it is to be strengthened in the inner man, we first need to understand why we need to be strengthened in the inner man. You see, we are weak and frail. We are fallen creatures. We need to comprehend the depth of our sin. Sometimes we think, well, I mean, I'm not so bad, right? We don't really understand our own sin. We don't understand the sinfulness of sin when we say things like that. We don't comprehend the depth of this. We need to appreciate what we call in Reformed theology the doctrine of total depravity. We need to see what the the Scriptures teach about our nature. That our nature is corrupted by sin. Natural man, because of his sin nature, is unable to do any spiritual good. The Bible talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. And so there is this conflict within the Christian between the old man of sin and the new man which is in Christ. The struggle between the spirit and the flesh. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so Paul's prayer here in Ephesians is that the Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit would strengthen believers in all that they are in regards to their spiritual life. That the Spirit would undergird them, if you will. Because they've been made new creatures in Christ. They are named in the family. And so his prayer is that the Holy Spirit would dwell in them. Would renew them. Would continually transform them, sanctify them in their inner man. And this inner man should not be understood to be merely the soul. But what Charles Hodge calls, quote, the inner and the interior principle of spiritual life, the product of the almighty power of the Spirit of God. End quote. This is walking by the Spirit, not by the flesh, as we as described in Galatians chapter five. The Christian who carries the family name has been saved from his or her sin and is being renovated and renewed by the indwelling Holy Spirit so that we can walk in the light. This is what is talked about in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is the work of the Spirit in us. We're being renewed daily. This is Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is that the Holy Spirit would renew and refresh the spiritual life of the Ephesians. This is the power of God at work. Out of the abundant riches of His divine attributes, that they would be strengthened and they would be encouraged. But this is a wonderful prayer for us, isn't it? How often do we pray that the Holy Spirit would, would strengthen each of us in this congregation? How often do we pray that, that for, our, for our sanctification, not only our own, but for the sanctification of one another, that we would grow in our knowledge of God and would grow in our holiness before Him. This is what Paul is praying for. And the purpose of this strengthening with power, verse 17, is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see, Jesus Christ not only saves us, but He dwells in us. As we live, He lives in us. In our hearts. He dwells with us by faith. Jesus Jesus describes this relationship in John chapter 15 in the parable of the vines when He says, Abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. He's abiding with us. Jesus doesn't just save you and say, well, good luck, off you go, you know. He lives with you. He abides in you. 
And so Paul's prayer is for the Spirit of God to be continually at work in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. This is abiding in faith. This is following wholeheartedly after Christ. Not just, not just simply giving lip service, like, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I, you know, I'm going to go my own thing over here. No, it's following Jesus. This is making your calling and election sure. It's the Holy Spirit of God who transforms the sinner into a saint. This is regeneration, which is necessary for faith. Paul is praying for the continuation of their faith and their having Christ dwell in them. He is praying for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that they would continue to walk by faith, true saving faith. We ought to be praying this for one another. Those who have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the inner man will experience the indwelling Christ. In Romans 8, 9 and 10 is particularly instructive in this regard. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Any who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you... Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. You have spiritual life because Christ is in you. If you don't have Christ in you, you don't have spiritual life. That's the point. It is plain, therefore, that Christ being in us means we have his spirit. And to have have his spirit means that God dwells in us. And so we are partakers of his life because we we live because Christ lives in us. This is the reality for the Christian. If this isn't the reality, then you're not a Christian. But one question we might ask is this. Why is Paul praying this for the Ephesians? Aren't they already Christians? Isn't it true that they are already believers? Listen, he's not praying that this would become a reality for them. He is praying that they would realize this reality. That they would see the truth of this reality. That they would be strengthened further in this reality of the Spirit living in them by faith in Christ. This is what he's praying for. This becomes more clear at the end of verse 17. And this brings us also now to the second part of Paul's prayer. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. You see, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of Christ has the effect of rooting and grounding the Christian in love. This is the fact that he is praying for. You see, the believers, they're already regenerated. They already have the Holy Spirit. Christ already in them, and they are in Christ. What Paul is praying for is for confirmation of that love. The effect of the inward strengthening by the Spirit is the confirmation of love. And the effect of the confirmation of love is the ability to comprehend the love of Christ. Knowing that Jesus loves you, comprehending that, and understanding the fullness of that. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
Paul's desire for the Ephesians is that they would be have, have deeply set roots in Christ's love. Not just not just sort of surface level. They would that those roots would go deep in their understanding and comprehension. To understand the depths of God's love. I don't know that we always appreciate that. How deeply God loved his people. Paul wants them to have a love which flows from their faith in the Redeemer. With the result being a comprehension with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth, right? So you have, like, think about the volume of God's love, right? How big is it? Could we, could we fill the room with it? Almost more than that. Could we, could we fill the whole town with it? No, it's, it's bigger than that. What about the whole world? It's bigger. Can we comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God? See, natural man without the regenerating and strengthening power of the Holy Spirit, without the indwelling Christ, without having been rooted and grounded in love, is wholly incapable, unable to comprehend the gospel of love of Christ, as is revealed. They don't they can't get they don't get it. In fact, it's utter foolishness. Without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we simply could not understand the breadth, length, height, and depth of God's love in Christ. It would be completely beyond our ability to understand. And how do we know this is true? Well, just look around the world. The world cannot understand the great length that God has gone to. The gospel makes no sense to the world. It is, in fact, foolishness to those who are perishing. Why in the world would there be hope in the death of some obscure carpenter 2,000 years ago? I mean, how could you believe that he came back to life? And that people don't come back to life. Foolishness. The Christian faith is utterly ludicrous to those who are perishing. You and I cannot understand these truths but for the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Because our hearts have been changed by the Spirit. And so Paul is praying for the Ephesians that they would be strengthened in order that, with all the saints, they might be able to comprehend fully the truth of which he preaches. He wants them to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He is speaking here of spiritual knowledge. Because how can you you really know something that is beyond your ability to know? The knowledge of Christ and His love is inexhaustible. There's never a day that you're going to sit down, you're going to read through your Bible, and you're like, Got it! I've got it all figured out. I am now fully sanctified. And fully know and understand all of God's love. No, it's inexhaustible. The object of of that knowledge is God, and God is infinite. 
this is, of course, the problem that has faced mankind from the beginning. How can the finite, how can the, how can the creature know the infinite? Consider the question in Job 11. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Of course, the answer is, of course not. It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. They're thinking a little bit too small there. It's even greater than that. Paul speaks here similarly, expressing the boundless nature of the nature of God and his love. So he's praying for these Christians in Ephesus and for us that they would have knowledge of this. Wait, what? Of the infinite? Of of the inexhaustible love of God? Yes. That's what he's praying for. To know what is infinite is to know what surpasses knowledge. But when we know the love of Christ, the love which he has for his people, the church, that is to be filled with the fullness of God. And this fullness is endless. You and I could spend eternity plumbing the depths of God's love and we would never get to the end of it. Never. The love of God for His people in Christ is infinite. It is like a bottomless well that is always producing. Without the Spirit, we could not even begin to comprehend that. In fact, everything I just said would make absolutely no sense at all. But this category of thought, that is, of the infinite, is in many respects beyond the finite mind. And yet, we can know and we can grow in the knowledge of Christ's love. And so this is the prayer. That we may be filled with the Spirit of God and grow in our knowledge of Him and of His love for us. And so as Paul continues to uh, contemplate the immeasurable love of God, the depths of his wisdom and power, he is, of course, in typical Pauline fashion, led to a doxology of praise. God has done far beyond what we can even think or ask. He's beyond words. And so he casts himself, as it were, upon the infinitude of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This doxology of praise is similar to others that we see in Scripture. Romans uh, chapter 11 verse 36. For from him and through him and to him, to him are all things. To him be Glory forever. Amen. Or Psalm 8, 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You see, God is to get all the glory because He is worthy of all glory. His glory is magnificently displayed in His creation and in His work of redemption in Christ. 
This glorious Savior has set His name on His people. Remember, again, you have His name. He has set His name on you. He has brought you into the kingdom. Therefore, the church is to offer Him all glory. Oh, that those in Christ would give Him all glory from generation to generation. May God be given all glory. Praise is to be rendered in the church in and through Jesus Christ, who is her Lord, who is her head and Redeemer and King. All of the redeemed of God in all times and all places, the church and the heavens and earth are to give praise to God. And there is to be an endless duration of praise given to God. This praise is a direct result of the mighty deeds that He has done, namely, in saving His people. This is why the glory is in the church and through Jesus Christ. God's glorious power was operational in your life as you became a believer. You are the beneficiary of salvation. And that mystery of salvation has been revealed in His Word and through Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood purchased dead sinners. And yet, He can do far more than you can think or even ask. The God you serve, beloved, is absolutely glorious. And what He accomplishes is through a power that is already operating in you, namely, His Holy Spirit. Do you wonder if God can heal? Do you wonder if God can transform dead sinners? Do you wonder if God could move mountains? The power by which He does these things resides in the hearts of His people, for He has given to you as a down payment of His grace, His Holy Spirit. So that what is accomplished is not by your power or by my power. Because if that were the case, we would say, well, I should get some glory, right? No. He gets all the glory because it's by His power that He does His will. And so it is that we pray, and we ought to pray, not my will, O God, but Your will be done. Well, as we studied Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, I hope, my hope is that you've gotten some idea of how we can pray, how we can pray humbly, how we can pray joyfully, how we can pray thankfully, how we can pray for God to continue to be at work in the hearts of fellow sinners, that we may comprehend the love of God we have in Christ, that we may have a greater understanding of His mercy. This is good because, Lord, we are finding ourselves at a time when we need to be on our knees. I suppose there's really never a time we shouldn't be on our knees, but perhaps at times such as this, it's a good reminder of we need to come before the infinite God. We are, in our day, facing great calamity. And cheer up, it could, it could get worse, and it could. There is great suffering in our own community. There's great suffering around the world. We've touched on a few things. Uh, we have believers in China which are being persecuted. Uh, we see the, the great possibility has probably already begun of believers in Afghanistan. And there's many other places. But people in our own community are suffering too. People are dying. 
There is fear of disease, of government overreach, of economic collapse. We see threats to the church around the world. Sometimes it seems like the world is falling apart, doesn't it? Could these times of calamity be a chastisement? Reminding us of our need to repent of sin, to rely on Him, perhaps. As I've already mentioned, next Saturday we have the opportunity to join together with others in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church for a day of fasting and prayer. So I would encourage you, if you aren't able to come, that you would have a season of prayer for the community, for our nation, for the world, for the church. The needs are great, but do not neglect the root issues, and that is the spiritual need which exists. Perhaps God will use the calamity of our present day to bring about a season of spiritual renewal. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ that they too may be filled filled and strengthened by the Spirit. That we all might comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses understanding that we may be filled with the fullness of God. May God be glorified in and through us as He is through the church. May God be pleased to bring seasons of refreshment and renewal to His people, even as we seek to invite others into the peace which comes from knowing and resting in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we delight to call you our Father. For we are your children. You have put your name on us. You have marked us as your own. We are your beloved and adopted children in Christ. And Father, we pray, O God, that you would fill the people of this church with your spirit. That you would strengthen each of these children that you would grant them that they may know the love which you have for them in Christ, that they may grow in that understanding. Grant that we might comprehend your love. And may you, O God, be glorified as we are filled with your fullness. Bless us, strengthen us, renew us by your Spirit. Show us the magnitude of your goodness and your mercy and love. And may we stand amazed, O God, by your glory. May we live each day in light of your amazing grace. Thank you, O Father. Thank you for your blessing to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.